in Matthew's Gospel, if you would turn to uh, Matthew 14, uh, this evening we're going to look at verses uh, 22 uh, down to verse 33. So if you would turn there in, the, in your Bibles. Now we had a bit of a technology uh, problem before the service, uh, so I can't show you uh, a video uh, that I was going to show you. Uh, it was a very cool video. Uh, and if at home you want to look at it, if you go onto YouTube and you type in uh, Jesus Christ Gecko, okay, you can see a picture of this lizard that can run really fast uh, using its uh, back legs and tail mostly uh, across the water to escape predators. It's really a cool um, uh, video. And uh, no tricks involved. It is a genuine uh, freak of nature, if you like. There is a gecko, uh, the Jesus Christ gecko, that can run to escape predators on water. And it's the only, as far as I'm aware, animal uh, that, can, that, that can walk on the water. And it's an extraordinary thing to watch because these things don't normally happen, do they? And so when we come to this passage tonight in Matthew's Gospel, it is extraordinary that Jesus Christ, the man, walks on the water. He doesn't just run like the lizard gecko for a few seconds because the gecko can only do it for a few feet. Jesus walks on the water completely calmly, completely in control, doing something extraordinary. So extraordinary, in fact, that if you just look at the end of our passage, look at verse 33. It says, Then, so after they had just seen what they had seen, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. What happens here in this passage causes the disciples to worship Jesus and say, Surely, you are the Son of God. It's the first time in Matthew's gospel the disciples do this. The demons have already done it before, but this is the first time that the disciples have said, you are the Son of God. And leading up to this, Matthew has been showing us the identity of Jesus. He is God with us. We've seen that through his words and through his works. But we've also seen some of the nature of discipleship. The identity of Jesus and the nature of discipleship. We saw those things in the feeding of the 5,000. And as we come to this passage, those themes of who is this man, who is this, this Jesus, and what does it mean to follow him, those themes are very clear as we continue in Matthew's gospel and we see this passage of the walking on the water. But before we read this, just to, uh, a bit of background on, uh, on some Bible information, really. Whenever the Bible uh, talks about the raging sea, it not always, but almost always, is, is used as a, as a sign of, of chaos and of, of suffering, something that is uncontrollable. The sea is something which, to the Israelites, was a place of fear. It was, it, no one could, can contain the sea. If you uh, know uh, anything about our history, King Canute tried, didn't he? He stood there and tried to control the sea, but it just washed over him. He could do nothing about it. 
but God does. And in the Bible, we read of God as the one who controls the seas. We saw that even in uh, Psalm 65 that we read earlier. And as Jesus walks on the sea and the disciples are caught up in the storm, it's very significant in telling us about who is Jesus. He is the God over the storm who controls the sea, who walks on it. And it tells us a lot about the nature of discipleship in how do we live in the midst of this chaos in our lives. What we see in this passage is Jesus, the God over the storm. So with that background and context, let's just look at Matthew chapter 14 from verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside to pray uh, by himself. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This is God's word. And it's a true and historical word. We need to point that out, really, as we look at these Amazing events in the life of Jesus, this is no fairy tale. This is no made-up story that, that someone thought of. This is real life. This is factual history. Jesus Christ walks on the water. But before we see him walking on the water, we see something else about Jesus in relation to the chaos of this storm. And that is that Jesus is sovereign over the storm. What we see here is that Jesus sends the disciples into it. So the passage begins right off of the back of this miraculous feeding of the 5,000 that we saw last time. And Jesus makes, uh, if you like, a strange request. He tells the disciples to get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. And it's strange because it seems to happen for no reason. Matthew doesn't give us a reason why he sends them to the other side. And in fact, when it says he made them, it's a very strong word. He demanded it. He, he commanded, you get in the boat and you go to the other side. And he also dismisses the crowd. Again, having no choice in the matter, they have to go. And Jesus here shows his authority. He makes a demand of them. They must go in the boat, the disciples, the crowd have to disappear. What is the reason? We're not told 
here, although John, in his account of the feeding of the 5,000, tells us that the, the crowds wanted to make Jesus king immediately. There was an excitement building, uh, and so Jesus, not wanting to be an earthly king, dismissed them to, to calm down things. Uh, but to Matthew, those events really, those points aren't important because he doesn't mention them. What is important in this passage is that Matthew focuses on the authority of Jesus to demand the disciples go and dismiss the crowd. The disciples have to go on a boat ride. It's about four miles from uh, probably where the feeding of the 5,000 was, was in Capernaum. They have to go about four miles, possibly to Bethsaida. They get in the boat, and the disciples obey the word of the Lord. They, they get into the boat, and they disappear. And what does Jesus do? Well, in verse 23, he goes up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Now, why is it important that we see here Jesus going on the mountainside to pray? Because Matthew says, in verse 23, he went up by himself and in verse 20, uh, verse 20 uh, sorry, at the end of the verse, he emphasizes it again. Later that night, he was there alone. He, makes it, he says it twice in the verse. He went by himself. He was alone. Why is that important? Well, first of all, I think it's important to show the humanity of Jesus. That is, he needs to pray to his Father in heaven. He, he's getting here the... The rest, if you like, he didn't get when he was on his way uh, before, when the crowds disturbed him and he fed them. But also, I think we see here that Jesus is dependent on his Father. He has to pray. Here is a man, a man who is by himself on a mountainside praying. And it's important we see here that this is a man because it makes what goes on later all the more extraordinary. The person that's going to be walking on the water isn't a ghost. It isn't some Marvel character. This is a man, Jesus. But the second reason it's important that he's by himself is because it points out that he's not with his disciples. Where are his disciples? Well, in verse 24, the disciples are in the boat, a considerable distance from the land, being buffeted by the waves because the wind was against them. While Jesus had been praying all night, the disciples, it seems, had been rowing all night. The boat trip, which was supposed to be about four miles in a boat with experienced fishermen, turned out to be a long journey because of the weather. I suppose it's back in the day, their equivalent of bad traffic. But this wasn't just bad traffic, it was a serious storm. And they're a considerable distance from land. They're obviously in trouble. They are exhausted. Because in verse 25, we read that when uh, Jesus comes on the lake, it is shortly before dawn. Now, dawn uh, literally is the fourth watch. So it's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. And if they left just after dinner, it indicates to us that they had been going a long time. They were out all night in the boat against this storm. The disciples are tired. They're in trouble, they're buffeted by the waves, but here's the point, Jesus put them in the boat. And Jesus, we know from earlier in Matthew, is one who controls the weather. He was the one who put them in the boat knowing what was going to happen. He wasn't 
ignorant of this. This was his own design. And that's an important truth for us, isn't it? Storms in the sovereign, are in the sovereign plans and purposes of God for his people. Just think about that for a moment. God puts us into storms. He puts us into troubles, into chaos. What do you uh, think about when you think about God? Do you think about God as someone that is taken by surprise when things go wrong in our lives? You know, God's not up there scratching his head thinking, oh, if only I'd known they were going to get into this situation. God is not up there thinking, oh, I knew this was going to happen. I'm really sorry. Uh, I kind of messed up a bit here. No, God doesn't need to apologize as if he'd made a mistake. Rather, God is in complete control of all things, and he is working all things for his glory. He is far bigger than we can ever comprehend. And even sending us into storms is part of his plans and purposes. A few months ago, when um, Paula and I went to the events week at the Birmingham uh, City University, I was asked to give a talk on uh, where is God in our suffering. And I used an illustration which I think is helpful here to kind of uh, explain what we mean when God is sovereign even over our troubles. And I used the illustration of uh, recently uh, we've seen the development of smart motorways. Now, smart motorways use uh, a system that slow people down so that you won't meet problems later. The driver has no idea what's going on when they're going 30 miles an hour on the M6. When I have to go 30 miles an hour on the motorway, you're just frustrated, aren't you? It's just irritating because you want to get going faster, especially when you can see no other traffic around. And you're thinking, why am I going so slow? Why have, and, then the, and you know if you speed up, it's, it's illegal, but you know there'll be a speed camera as well. So you can't do anything, and you're sat there frustrated that you're going slow. Or they might, on the motorways, on the slip roads, on smart motorways, they put uh, traffic lights. And you're thinking, what earth has a traffic light doing on a, on a slip road on a motorway? I want to get going. And it's frustrating. But the reason the smart motorways work the way they do is they slow you down here so that you don't meet problems down there. So even though you, when you're going 30 miles an hour, all of a sudden you can go back up to 70 and you think, what on earth was that all about? The smart motorway system works in such a way that it controls what's going on to help us along the journey. And God sees in a similar kind of way. If we're stuck in the traffic, if we're suffering, if you like, we can only see what is directly in front of us or behind us or to the side of us. And we can be frustrated and wonder what earth is going on. I can see no reason why I'm suffering in this way. But God has the whole view, not just of a short distance like a motorway, but of the whole of history. From the beginning to the end of time. God sees all of it and is in complete control of all of it. And it is all working according to his plan. And it's easy for us to stand in judgment and say, well, he should not have allowed that to happen. But we don't even know 
what else might have happened if such and such didn't happen. God is in control of all events, tying all things together throughout all of history and all of our lives to a plan that works for his glory and, the Bible says, for the good of those who love him. God is God, and we are not. Now, on its own, that may not actually be all that much comfort to us. The disciples are still wondering why Jesus sends them in the boat when into the storm. They're still, no doubt, frustrated about what's going on. It's no comfort to them to say, well, Jesus knew this was going to happen. But here's the comfort. What's Jesus doing while the storm is raging? He's praying, isn't he? While the disciples are rowing in the boat, being buffeted by the waves, Jesus is praying to his Father. And I think there's a lovely picture there of the, the work of our, of our Lord Jesus interceding on our behalf, speaking on our behalf to our Heavenly Father. We can look at trials differently when we know that they are under the sovereign rule of a God who cares for us. Because when God is in control of all things, he's not like the smart motorway, which is a computer algorithm. He's a God who cares deeply for his people. And there he is, praying for us. But the the care of God is shown in a deeper way as the passage moves on. Because as well as Jesus Christ being sovereign over the storm, the second thing we see is that Jesus is present during the storm. Uh, At the the beginning of the service, uh, I, I quoted Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's exactly what we see here. In verse 25, we read that Jesus... During the storm, shortly before dawn, dawn, he went out to them. He went out to them. He doesn't leave them on their own. He goes to them. And how he does this is amazing. And in fact, one thing which also is amazing is the way that Matthew just puts it, as if it's just a normal everyday thing. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. It's just so matter of fact, isn't it? But this is not just some matter-of-fact thing. This is something outrageous. A man walks on water. And in the Old Testament, we read that God is the one who controls the seas. Here's some, uh, just a few uh, verses. Psalm 89, verse 9. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Psalm 65, we read earlier. God is the one who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. And Job, in chapter 9 and verse 8, talks of God. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. This is is God here. There is no other explanation. This isn't a magic trick. This isn't, they weren't as far out as they thought they were and he was really on the shore. Jesus is in the middle of the lake walking on the water. And here's the thing, the storm that threatened to be over the heads of the disciples was under the feet of Jesus. The storm that threatened to be over the heads of the disciples was under the feet of Jesus. 
Jesus, we read here, is in complete control over the chaos as only God can be. It's under his feet and he's walking over it. And it's so outrageous what's going on here that in verse 26, the disciples are just terrified. And, you know, they're terrified because they just don't expect a man to be doing this. And you can argue all you want that, well, they should have known it was Jesus. Well, we should be wary of thinking in this way because you just don't see this kind of thing every day. They're looking out and there is a man walking on the water. And they may well have just been with Jesus and he's done all these miracles But it's too easy for us to think we can get away with thinking that we're better than they are and thinking, well, we would never have been like that. No, the the, the reason they're terrified is because this is just an outrageous thing. He's walking on the water. Only God does this. And I think when they don't, until at the end of the passage, we read that they worship and say, you are the son of God. But before they get to worship, they're terrified of God. And I think there's a lesson there in how, how God works with us. We, we need to, to rec- when we recognize who God is, he's terrifying. But when he comes to us, and as we will see, he helps us and lifts us and brings us to himself, it leads from terror to worship. So in verse 25, he, he, he shows that he is God. He's walking on the water. But in verse 27, he actually says he is God. Uh, Look at verse 27. It says, But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And when we read there, it is I, it literally is, Take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. That's what he's saying. And I am is the the name that God gives himself to his people, the covenant name of God in Exodus chapter 3, when he reveals himself to his people. He said, when Moses says, who shall I say sent me? God says, I am. That's his name, I am. And so Jesus is saying, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. He's saying, God is here. Take courage, don't be afraid, God is here. When I was uh, a child, uh, we used to go hiking on Dartmoor um, most weekends. And I used to go with my stepdad, who was in the Royal Marines. And so we used to go on some pretty long hikes sometimes, and no excuses for being tired or anything like that. You just have to keep going. Uh, But there were times when the weather would come in, the clouds would come in, and it would start raining, it would be cold, and we were a bit lost, and I was a bit worried. But I knew if I was with, with, with my stepdad, I'd be okay, because he was a Marine. He's had to be, he gets thrown in these places and just left, and he makes it out, and he's okay. I could know I would be all right, because I was with my stepdad, and he knows what he's doing. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. We can take courage and not be afraid, because God is present with us. How much more can we take courage and not be afraid when God is with us like he is here? This does not mean that, that suffering will not hurt. It doesn't mean that it won't end, that it will end quickly. But it does mean that the, the sovereign God 
who is in control is also the God who is present with us. Well, how is God present with us? Because he's not standing here. Jesus is in heaven right now. He's, he's not here um, walking on water or anything else in that way. How is God present with us? Well, he's present with us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God who lives in his people. And God lives in his people, which means he enables us to keep going and to keep following Jesus no matter the circumstances. That's how God is with us, by his spirit. But he's also with us by his word because the Bible reveals God to us. We can read words of comfort, words of rebuke, words of command, words of wisdom. The Bible, we say, is the word of the Lord. So this is God speaking to us. He's with us with his voice, speaking in his word. And he's with us by his people, the church, a group of Holy Spirit-filled people who love and care for one another. God is very present with us by his spirit, through his word, through his people. The sovereign God who sends us into the storm is the God who is present in it too. He doesn't leave us alone. He comes to us and he reminds us, it is I, I am. Take courage, do not fear. But there's another application here for us as we are in storms. Because Jesus uses the storm here to reveal himself. Because in verse 33, we see it ends with worship. And it was through this incident that Jesus, as he walks on the water, makes it clear to the disciples who he is. One writer uh, puts it like this. Jesus not only stills storms, but he uses storms as a pathway to a greater revelation of himself. I don't think it's reading too much into this text to say that the reason Jesus sent the disciples to that storm was so that he could show them who he was. And it is in difficult times that God can and does reveal himself to us in new ways. And we see him in ways perhaps we would never have otherwise. So Jesus is sovereign over the storm, and he is present in the storm. So in those two things, uh, we see the identity of Jesus. But as Matthew moves on through uh, the disciple Peter, we see more on the nature of discipleship. And what we see is Jesus needs to be our focus in the storm. I mean, that's the logical conclusion of recognizing the identity of Jesus, isn't it? If, if this is the God who is sovereign over the storm and present with us in the storm, then logically we should then just say, okay, I'm going to focus on him. But what is logical isn't always easy. If the storm is over the heads of the disciples and under the feet of Jesus, our focus needs to be on Jesus. And in verse 28, Peter realizes Jesus is with them, and it gives him courage. Jesus has told him, have courage, and Peter follows that. He, he says, Lord, if it's you. 
And when he says this, he's not testing Jesus. He's not saying, oh, yeah, right, if it really is you, tell me to come out. That's not what's going on here. You could also translate this as, since it's you. Lord, since it's you, tell me to come out. Peter sees Jesus. He sees his power. And Peter shows great faith. Now, Peter often comes under criticism from this passage because he's the one that sank. But just remember, he's the one that was walking on water too. He was the only one that stepped out the boat. He wants to be with the one who has the storm under his feet. That's what Peter's doing here. And in verse 29, we read some wonderful permission from Jesus. Come, he says. Jesus shares his power with Peter. And God's power is at work in his disciples in the midst of a raging storm. Through the storm, he he enables Peter to walk on the water with him. As Peter focuses on Jesus, and as faith in Jesus, he steps out onto the uh, water, and he walks on the water too. And And we read, he goes toward Jesus. He's walking towards him. And as his eyes are on Jesus, and he's moving towards Jesus, Peter does the most outrageous thing too. He also walks on the water. The storm is raging. We haven't seen it stilled yet. It's raging. But as his focus is on Jesus, and on the power that Jesus has as God, Peter is sharing in that power and walking on the water too. His strength is in Jesus. And the same is true for us. As we trust in Jesus, his strength is in us to enable us to go through our trials. As we trust in Jesus, his strength is in us to enable us to go through the trials. His power is shared with us. But in verse 30, there's a big change of focus. And the change of focus is a change of Peter's focus. Begins with but, so we know that it's going to change. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Now, when he saw the wind does not mean he suddenly realized there was a storm. They were in the storm. They knew there was a storm. That's partly why they were amazed at what Jesus was doing. It doesn't mean that suddenly he realized he was in a storm. He knew there was a storm when he stepped out of the boat in the first place. What this means was, sorry, what this meant was that his focus changed during the storm from Jesus to the wind that was around him. As his eyes come away from Jesus and they start to look elsewhere at the circumstances around him, Peter starts to sink. As his eyes turn away from Jesus, his feet start to sink into the water. Jesus had said in verse 27, do not fear because he was present. Jesus hadn't gone anywhere, but Peter fears and he doesn't trust in Jesus. But he hasn't lost faith completely because as he sinks, he still has the faith to say to Jesus, Lord, save me. Despite the doubt that Peter showed, 
He still has faith to call out to Jesus for help. And Jesus reaches down and lifts him up. Even as he doubts, as Peter's doubting Jesus, Jesus still lifts him out of the water. And then in verse 31, we see this rebuke from Jesus. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Little faith means he was not trusting in Jesus, but he doubted. Now, we have to be very careful with this verse. Because some people look at this verse in the wrong way. They'll look at it like this. If only Peter had had a bit more faith, he would have been just fine. If Peter's measure of faith was greater, then he wouldn't have sunk. He would have carried on walking. Logical conclusion? Well, if I had a bit more faith, then I would be healed. If I had a bit more faith, I could walk on water. My faith obviously isn't big enough. The problem with that, that interpretation is that Jesus' power then is dependent on us manufacturing more faith. The problem with that interpretation is that Peter could only walk on water if he had enough faith, and it was nothing to do with the fact that Jesus is Almighty God. The amount of faith we have is not actually important at all. It is the object of faith that is important. It's what our focus is on, not how much we have. Just to illustrate this, um, Paula and I uh, sometimes go on an airplane uh, to America. And we often, the place we've flown to the most is San Francisco. Now, Paula loves flying. She thinks it's great. She gets on the plane, no nerves, no nothing. This is all happy time. I'm a little bit worried when I get on the plane. I still, I look at a plane from the ground, and I still think it's amazing that big hunk of metal can, metal can stay in the air. And so I'm on the plane, and I'm, I'm not, you know, really bad, but I get nervous. But just imagine, for the sake of the illustration, that I was absolutely terrified, throwing up, pacing up and down, really having a, a, a meltdown on the plane. When we're in the air, if the wing falls off that plane, it doesn't matter that Paula has loads of faith in the plane and I have none. That plane's going to crash, isn't it? It's not the amount of faith that matters when we're on the airplane. It is what our faith is in. And unlike a plane, which usually will get you to your destination, <laughs> otherwise I would never get on it, Jesus will, because he is almighty God who is sovereign over the storm. The storm is under his feet. He's walking on it. He's working for his glory and our good. He is God Almighty. And when Peter looked at his circumstances, that caused his faith in the object, Jesus, to waver, and so he sunk. And when we're looking at our circumstances, rather than focusing on Jesus, it's then that we doubt and we start to sink. Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us the same lesson. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And in fact, that verse teaches us that Jesus is the one who gives us the faith. He's the perfecter of faith. So it's not about do, who, who in our congregation has the most faith. If we had, a, had one of those... Um, 
like jars you put coins in to see which charity wants to get the most money. And we would say, well, who has the most faith? And we had all the members and put the coins in and such and such has the most. It makes no difference because Jesus is the one who is the object of our faith and will get us to the destination. So Peter's focus turned away from Jesus and to the circumstances. So how do we focus on Jesus in the midst of the storms in our life? Well, God actually gives us means in order to do this. For example, the Lord's Supper is a good way of refocusing and reminding ourselves of the deliverance from the greatest of all storms, that of death and hell. And with that in our minds, we can say, you know, if God's delivered me from that, he can deliver me from anything. That's the the thrust of Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The Lord's Supper can help us to focus on the greatest of deliverances. And we can say, if he's delivered me from that, if he's died for me, if he was willing to do that for for me, surely he's going to get me to the, the destination of heaven. Memorizing scripture can be a really good way of refocusing. And as we go over God's word in our mind again and again, it helps us to focus away from our circumstances and back to the God who is sovereign over all. And in fact, Romans chapter 8 is a great chapter to memorize for the suffering Christian, to remind ourselves of those great truths of the gospel and the God who is over it all. Prayer helps us to refocus too. We can get so busy and so surrounded by our circumstances that we forget to pray, and if we don't pray, our focus isn't going to be on our Savior. But even with all these means, all of us will have times in our lives where we doubt. And that's where we see another wonderful lesson here. Peter doubted, didn't he? But when he doubted and he began to sink, the sinking enabled him to refocus on God because he had nowhere else to go. And sometimes God allows us to have our doubts and have our blow-ups and all those kind of things And he takes us to a point where we have nowhere else to go but to say, Lord, save me. Nothing helps us to refocus quite like what was going on with Peter here. We read how Peter and Jesus climbed into the boat and the wind died down. He brought Peter to safety. And so too will Jesus bring all his people, to complete peace. We can persevere by looking to our great future, can't we? Because Jesus will bring us to a place where we read in Revelation, there is no more sea. That is, no chaos, no storms, no suffering, or anything of the like. Just peace. Perfect peace with our Savior forevermore. Even when we doubt, we have a Savior who lifts us and carries us. And that is why in verse 33, we read, Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, 
you are the Son of God. And having heard what we have just heard in God's word here, can you say amen to that and worship him too? Truly, you are the Son of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is our Savior. And we pray that our focus would be on him. We know, Lord, that you are sovereign over every area of our lives. And we thank you that you are present with us in every area of our lives. But most of all, we thank you that we don't have to trust in ourselves, mustering up enough courage or faith or works or anything else. We just need to look to Jesus and he carries us home. Help us to focus our eyes on you, Lord, because truly, Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. Well, we're going to finish uh, by responding in song and saying together in song, through the storm, you are Lord of all. <laughs>